Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. It is good to be with you all. My honor, my privilege. Um, just love hearing how God is at work uh, in this uh, profound ministry uh, that God has braced with tremendous leadership. Uh, I've known uh, Pastor Ryan for a while now and just seeing uh, just him from just the whole thought of moving to Atlanta to plant a church uh, to seeing now in this space how God has favored and blessed uh, this vision he had laid upon his heart. Uh, so it is indeed a joy to be with you all. Uh, I send you all greetings from the church. I have the privilege of pastoring the Midtown Bridge down in Atlantic Station community, and um, it is good to be together this morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, what a joy. I think last year, 2020, uh, we got so used to kind of being in our pajamas, watching uh, TV online, and maybe there's somebody online right now, you need to come on back to the house of the Lord, because uh, we miss you. Your family misses you. And so they love, there's something about the people of God gathering, uh, that God does something special in us, but also through us uh, in the gathering. So what a privilege that we get to be a part of God's family. Uh, well, this morning, uh, I'm going to share from a passage in Galatians chapter number four. So if you don't mind making yourself there, make your way there uh, as we consider uh, these words uh, written by Paul, Galatians chapter number four. And while you make your way there, um, my father-in-law, uh, we have an amazing relationship. I love my father-in-law. Uh, he is also a ministry. He's a pastor. Uh, been in ministry, uh, I don't know, probably 30 plus years or so. Um, and just a tremendous mentor, tremendous uh, friend, uh, tremendous father. And um, I'm so grateful. Uh, but my father-in-law, he, um, he is hilarious. Uh, but he is hilarious. He's at his best, uh, not when he's trying to be funny, but rather when he's not trying to be funny. And so we just laugh, my, my wife and I, my daughters, and, and even my mother-in-law, we oftentimes just laugh and thinking about times when uh, he wasn't necessarily trying to be funny, but it was just so hilarious. And, and one story comes to mind, uh, at my daughter's school, uh, they have this event called Grandparents Day. And, and, and my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, they were down for Grandparents Day. Uh, I don't remember if they were both together, but I, I remember they were at Grandparents Day, and he told me the story how um, during Grandparents Day, of course, the, of course, the job is to showcase uh, the hidden talent the gifts, uh, the work of the children. And so here they are, they're showcasing uh, in this particular set, uh, setting, they had showcased some, um, some artwork uh, of the different children. And, and again, my father-in-law, I mean, if we, we always laugh. because like, you know what, if um, uh, he, he's, I mean, just magnetic personality, like just does not meet a stranger, a guy who just lights up a room, uh, bigger than life personality. And, and he's looking uh, at one of the, the art pieces, and uh, he, you know, just being himself, just kind of, it wasn't necessarily to his liking. Um, and so he just kind of maybe said a little brief comment. Um, but unbeknownst to him, the person he's talking to is their grandchild's artwork. He made the comment too. Um, so you can imagine just the kind of embarrassment, the, the moment, the weight of that moment. And, and I was just thinking about that and, and looking at this passage because here you have two individuals looking at the same piece of art. And one saw a kind of strange looking painting while the other, as a grandparent, saw a Picasso. One is looking at us, okay, I, I don't know what this child was thinking that day when he, when he put pen to paper or paint to paper. And the other is like, oh my, good, I'm, I'm, oh my good, I'm so proud of my granddaughter, my grandson, and what they've created. They saw a Picasso. Same perspective. This morning, 
as we examine this text, these words written by Paul, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, I want to examine it with that thought in mind, uh, gospel Picasso. Gospel Picasso. Galatians 4 reads these way, this way, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the incorruptible seed of your word. Father, I pray that our lives will be transformed by the beauty and preciousness of the gospel afresh. Father, I pray that you will bring these words alive and awaken us to the truth you're causing us to, calling us to apply to our very lives. Thank you for the hope, the beauty, the preciousness of the gospel. And Lord, I do pray for the man, woman, boy, girl, under the sound of my voice, or perhaps even tuning in online, who've yet to come to saving faith. I pray, God, that you would draw them unto yourself, that salvation may visit their household. And they will stand astounded, amazed at the hope and love you've lavished upon them. So, Father, thank you. Give us the ears to hear. And, God, may we be like the good soil that Jesus spoke of that yields a hundredfold return on the investment of your seed, your word. We love you and we praise you. It's in the mighty name of Christ we pray. Amen. Gospel Picasso. The book of Galatians is written by Paul. He's writing to a group of believers who were divided in their understanding of the gospel. Paul, he writes these words, refuting these Judaizers, if you will. The Judaizers, they were the individuals who, who were trying to persuade the Gentile believers that they must obey Jewish law in order to be saved. As a result of this great divide, Paul, he puts pen to paper and began to exhort and encourage and rebuke these believers who were starting to be somewhat confused and divided in their affection and following of Jesus. He writes these words to exhort them and remind them of the beauty of the purity of the gospel. A theme that runs throughout the book of Galatians is that of freedom in Christ. Well, he argues, he's persuading the believers then and us now to understand the, the liberties we now have because of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. We now have this new found awareness and freedom offered through the Son. And so now Paul, as he's writing these believers, contending, encouraging, exhorting them to contend and hold on to the purity of the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul, he confronts those that accepted this perverted gospel. In chapter number 2, he shares how important it was to hold to the pure gospel by retelling how he openly rebuked Peter or Cephas for his hypocrisy in this area. 
In chapter 3, he argues and highlights how the Old Testament provides a beautiful picture of grace, how there's this undercurrent of grace even when you examine the law in the Old Testament. And then in our our text, our focal text, chapter 4, he explains the purpose of God's law and the relationship between God's law, God's promises, and Christ. In these particular verses, we'll examine verses 4 through 7, I believe. Paul, he gives us a beautiful picture of adoption to highlight the transformative relational quality of the gospel. There are four reasons, I believe, adoption may be a gospel Picasso, as we see outlined in this text. The first I'd give you found in verse verse number four, and it is, it proves that divine timing usually works on broken clocks. Divine timing usually works on broken clocks. Verse four, he says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. To color in the picture on this text, we must understand the context Paul is bringing to bear. He's speaking about what we'll be celebrating in about a month or so away, the Christmas story. He's saying, I understand when you reflect on the beauty of Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation of Christ. Understand that in the fullness of time, what was happening behind the scenes? If you think about this, if we add color, if you look at the context Paul is bringing to bear and you see it in high definition, it really brings a greater awareness of God's divine timing and how it usually works on broken clocks. From this perspective, Paul, he's reminding them of of just the traditions of that day. If you think about just when Jesus came, From a human perspective, it was not the most opportune of times. A little context, when Jesus came, he was born as a child to a Jewish home. He grew up subject to the same religious law that governed his parents and their community. But also, Jesus, he was born during a time where God's people were experiencing tremendous unrest, according to Matthew chapter 1 and 2. They had been under Roman oppression, and they were longing to see God set them free. To make matters worse, Jesus, he was born into a family with very little resources. We see that in Luke chapter number 2, how it talks about him being born in a manger, a picture of poverty, a picture of lack, a picture of destitute. He's born during a time. Where people experiencing tremendous unrest, he's born into a family with very little resources, but also he was born into a culture where he'd be marked as unwanted. You think about Jesus as he walked the earth and some would pose a question, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth would be perceived what we would call the ghettos, the slums, the place nobody wants to proclaim they're from, Nazareth. And yet here Jesus, God in the flesh, is born in this context. He's born during a time where his people were experiencing tremendous unrest. He's born during a time to a family with very little resources. 
He's born into a culture where he would be marked as unwanted. But check this out. He's also born under suspicious circumstances. He's born under suspicious circumstances. Think, think about it. His mom's a virgin. Imagine someone showing up today and saying, yeah, I'm pregnant, but yeah, I never knew a man. Um, imagine the snares. Imagine the eye rolls. Imagine the, the assumptions and the gossip that will permeate through. But to make matters worse, if you think about Jesus' day, that was a punishable crime by death. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read it for yourself, in John's Gospel, chapter number 8, Jesus is in a dialogue, is in, having a dialogue with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. And in John's Gospel, chapter number 8, verses 31, I believe, down to verse 59, they're having this conversation about being children of Abraham. And they're adhering, they're bragging, they feel confident about them being connected to God because they could trace their lineage to Abraham. In this dialogue, in this, this back and forth, all of a sudden they got tired and they wanted to discredit Jesus. And around verse 41, the statement is made, you're doing the deeds of your father. That's what Jesus says to them. And check out what they say to Jesus. They said to him, verse 41 of John chapter number 8, go back and read it for yourself, says, we were not born of fornication. In other words, we know who our dad is, but do you, Jesus? He, he's, he enters the world during a time of tremendous unrest for his people. He enters the world to a family who's impoverished. He enters the world to a, coming from a culture and background that nobody wants to be from. He enters the world under suspicious circumstance. But yet Paul says here in the fullness of time, he shows up. But Paul, Paul, how could you say in the fullness of time, Paul, how could you say this was, this was the right timetable from, from, from God's perspective? Because from a human perspective, it seems like it was the wrong time. Well, here, Paul, he brings to bear this beautiful hope, this beautiful reminder that God, from his perspective, is always working in perfect timetables. From heaven's perspective, it was the perfect time. But also, God is not concerned about timing. But it, all, it goes on to say, but he sent forth his son. In other words, it's talking about Jesus being sent from a pure and perfect place, heaven. At the perfect time, God sends the perfect son from a perfect place to an imperfect people born of a woman. He sends his son, born of a woman, showing that he would be able to identify, step into our brokenness, identify with our pain. But he's also born under the law. What are you getting at, Paul? Paul would have us understand that this, this God, he sends this perfect, this perfect son from a perfect place to an imperfect people so that he might identify with our pain and our troubles even today. I like this. I like this because Paul, here he is. Here he is. He's saying, look, at just the right time. Now, remember the schisms taking place in the text. Imagine, if you will, you being a Jew and you're hearing this narrative, you're hearing this command, you're hearing this retelling of, of the beauty of when Jesus came. And all your life you've been told you've been treated like an outsider. You've been believed that you don't belong. And now Paul says, no, no, no. In the fullness of time, God was working his divine plan on some broken clocks from a human perspective. Um, I was thinking the other day, uh, one of my daughters was cleaning the kitchen 
and, and I'm sitting doing some work in my office, and, and all of a sudden I hear, hear a shatter. I hear a shatter. So I come running to the, to, to, to the kitchen because she was cleaning the dishes because I, I heard a shatter. And I knew something had broken. And, and so all of a sudden I run. I say, okay, baby girl, I need you to go. Move out of the way because she didn't have on any shoes. And I spent about 30 minutes cleaning up the glass. The, 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 the shattered pan had shattered. And one interesting thing about glass when it shatters, it doesn't stay localized to one location. I mean, I was finding glass not just in the kitchen, but around the corner. I found it in another room, all because of just this glass. A glass, if only it could stay in one place. So it is with sin. Sin has a tendency uh, not to stay localized, but it affects sometimes not just the situation we're in, but also the situation we're hoping is going to come. It's not contained. It's, it's not localized. And as I was cleaning that up, it just gave me a, a beautiful picture of the gospel because I'm like, okay, wh- what are you saying, Paul? What, what does this have to do? He said, no, understand this, Milton. In the fullness of time, Milton, when you was buried in your sin, when you wanted nothing to do with God, know that God wanted everything to do with you. In the fullness of time, God sent his son from a perfect place to an imperfect people to show them how to live and how he could identify with their suffering and their brokenness. I believe adoption is a gospel Picasso because it proves that divine timing usually works on broken clocks. But then the second thing we see in the text is, I believe it's a gospel Picasso because it heightens our awareness of the beauty of redemption. It heightens our awareness of the beauty of redemption. Verse 5, he says, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul says, okay, the reason I'm telling you this first part is so this second part is really going to blow your mind. The reason I need you to understand the timing of God and when he showed up is because when you, when you can understand that, this second truth I'm about to tell you is going to blow your mind. He says, so that he waited and he waited and he allowed the intertestamental period to take place. He allowed the 400 years for people to be wanting and longing in the fullness of time. He allowed all that to happen to, to, to whet your appetite for what he was about to do. He says, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. You see, the reason God sent his son into the world was to accomplish two things. The first was that those that though he might redeem those who were under the law, the Jewish people, but second, that he might receive, we might receive the adoption as children. That word adoption in the Greek, word for adoption used is, is found about five times in the New Testament. You find it in Romans chapter number 8, verse 15. He's talking about adoption. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, he's talking about adoption. In Romans chapter number 9, verse 4. Here in Galatians 4, verse 5. In Ephesians also, chapter 1, verse 5. He uses this word. It's a compound word. A combination of of son and to place. It's where it comes together. A son and to place. It's a picture of the intentionality of God. Paul, he is alluding to a Greek and Roman custom more so than a Hebrew one. 
Since adoption was a technical term in Roman law for an act that had specific legal and social effects, there's much probability that Paul had some references to that in his use of the word adoption. He could have said son, he could have said children, but he became very intentional. He says adoption. Um, my daughters, I have two daughters, and um, I, I, remember, um, I remember when my wife was with child, she was pregnant with my daughters, and I remember, um, I, remember I would be looking at other children, and I would think, like, okay, what, 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 I, want to, I just couldn't wait to see what they're going to look like. I was like. So I would see a child that may have had some uh, similarities of my wife, or maybe they had some similar features of, of, of me, and I'm like, okay, that's probably what she, they're going to kind of look something like that. And, and I was always just like, I just couldn't wait to meet them, but I would see little children, I'd be drawn to them. Like, that's probably what my daughter's going to look like. Ain't no, they look nothing like those children. <laughs> they look much better. <laughs> and I remember thinking that, but, but I realized that um, my, I'm grateful for my daughters. Wouldn't change, wouldn't, wouldn't trade them for the world. But I had very little choice in my children. Very little. I mean, now again, if they came home, my wife and, you know, different far different pigmentation. We're going to have some conversations about that. But, 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 but I had very little kind of, kind of, kind of deterrent, determination on like what they would look like, you know, the, the, the hair color, the eye color, you know, the, the, even the skin color. I mean, just I, very little. But I knew I was going to love them. But Paul says here, adoption. He doesn't say son, doesn't say daughter. Because in adoption... You have a choice. In adoption, a lot of times there's a backstory. I talk with my wife because my wife, she's, she, she's always, I mean, just watching God kind of open this door and, and make room for her to use this gift and see her come alive. Um, and just, this is her, her, her ministry. It's not just work. It's a ministry and calling. And, and we'll sometimes talk about some of the backstories of what these children came out of and the brokenness and the trauma and some of the hurt they had to navigate um, to be before they were ready for this adoption. Day. And, and I just listen to her sometimes now with everything being virtual on those calls and seeing parents is weeping and crying because they remember when they first connected with this child, this, this now legally bounded child, and knowing where they were, and you see this child standing before the judge, a new creature, and I, I think about that, and Paul here says adoption. Why, Paul? Remember the schism in this church. The schism is you have the Jews who believe they belong and the Gentiles who believe they didn't. You have one class, one group who thought like, you know what, we're connected. We can take, trace our lineage back to Abraham. We, was always, we were always on the Father's mind. Then you had these other groups who were being told, yeah, you can come in, but you got to sit over there. Because you don't have the customs and cultures, and you weren't born to the right family group. So, so until you decide to curve some of your traditions and behaviors, then and only then will you be accepted. Paul puts pen to paper, and he writes these words, remember you were adopted. In other words, you didn't choose God. God chose you. It wasn't your resume. It wasn't your, your biographical sketch. It wasn't who you were connected to. It was because God looked down and he saw fit to choose you. Paul, why would you say adoption? Because adopted children, they don't choose their parents. Their parents choose them. 
And sometimes we forget that we were adopted. And so Paul reminds his audience then and us today that it wasn't you choosing God. Yes, I understand this whole idea of election and all that good stuff. There was a choice, but ultimately it was God's choosing and drawing you in. It heightens our awareness of the beauty of redemption. Paul says that you might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. He redeemed those. He purchased us back. He gave a deposit, a payment we could never pay. And I believe adoption is the Picasso of the gospel because in reflecting on it, it reminds us that God chose us. And that should be something we never get tired of hearing. But then the third thing we see in the text, I believe, adoption. This is a gospel Picasso because it makes us hypersensitive to the miraculous privilege that we are sons and daughters. It makes us hypersensitive to the, the, the miraculous privilege that we are sons and daughters. Verse 6, it says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He says, because you are sons, there are two things going on here. The first is our adoption to God's family. The second is the gift of the spirit that every believer now has. This verse, it sounds as if the sequence is that we are adopted and then we receive the Spirit. However, it seems likely that these two things would happen almost simultaneously in most instances. We're, we're adopted and then we're immediately given the Spirit. Ephesians talks about us being, it talks about us being sealed with the Spirit. And so, so in understanding that, and look what Paul says. He says, okay, so that we can cry, Abba, Father. What he does is he uses this very intimate word, Abba. You remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging of the Father, and he uses that word intimately as he's, he's drawing, knowing his moment of departure at his hand, knowing that the cross was imminently before him. And he uses this beautiful, intimate word, Abba. This word, Abba, Father, is the kind of phrase that a small child would use to refer to his or her father. It's an intimate word. It's, it's a word that denotes closeness and a connectedness beyond just general familiarity. And Paul says here to the Galatians, he says, because now you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into your hearts. In other words, what Paul is saying is like, look, look at how close God has brought you. You know people, I don't know if you know people who, um, uh, they struggle um, communicating. They, they struggle um, respecting personal boundaries. You, you know people, especially now with COVID, it kind of makes you a little hypersensitive. And, and you know, people who like, they just kind of invade your personal space. I, I, I have a family member, and my wife and I, we still laugh this day, but she has a tendency. Um, you know, she has a conversation, and she gets, like, close. 
And it's like real awkward. Like we're cousins. Like we shouldn't be like this close. Like we can hug and then remove, you know, hug and then remove. But we shouldn't have a whole five, 20 minute conversations. Like, I mean, it's, it's just awkward. And I love her. I love her. I love her. Grateful for her. But you know, people just kind of invade that, that personal space. Paul here saying, God, what he did was he invaded your personal space. He got real up close and personal to make you awkward when you find yourself in sin. To make you uncomfortable when you're doing things that you know are not worthy of your sonship and daughtership. He says he moved in with you. <laughs> Look what he says. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He's, he's gotten up close and personal with you and I. But what's so beautiful about this is, is to imagine how the first century audience would have heard these words. Can't you see that Galatian, that, that, that Gentile uh, a young man who, who, who Christ drew to himself and, and he, he knew he was never invited into the temple? Because he was a Gentile. He knew all his life that he didn't belong. Now, even though he was a part of this new movement, the church, the way, there's still people telling him, well, if you really want to belong, then you need to follow these customs. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey these traditions. Can you, can, can you imagine him sitting and hearing this letter read to the church? Then now you're a son. Then now not only are you a son, but the spirit lives inside of you. And now you don't have to have an intermediary. You don't have to have somebody interceding on your behalf, but you can go directly to the father. And you've heard in the streets and the crowds how the sons and daughters would cry Abba to their father saying, this is daddy right here. Now you have that same connection to your heavenly father. Paul says, the gospel, it makes things so much more precious. I believe adoption is a Picasso of the gospel because it makes us hypersensitive to miraculous privilege that we are sons and daughters. It heightens our awareness of the beauty of the redemption. It proves that divine timing usually works on broken clocks. But then the last thing we see in verse 7, is it transforms, it transforms how we view ourselves and others. It transforms how we view ourselves and others. Verse 7, it says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. He says, therefore, 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 in light of everything I've said, all I've been, I've been laying my case for this moment. He says, understand this, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. In the Old Testament, only sons were heirs. Invested, invested with the right of the inheritance. The Torah is specified that the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. And each of the other sons was to receive a single portion. We find this in Deuteronomy 21 verse 17. In other words, that played out. If a father had three sons, the inheritance will be divided four ways. The firstborn son would receive two parts, 
one half of the inheritance. As an example, and the other two sons will receive one portion, each pretty much one-fourth. Fathers were not permitted to alter this formula, to favor a well-liked son or to punish a son. You find that outlined in Deuteronomy 21, verse 16. However, the Torah, it creates exceptions for special cases. For example, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give this inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give this inheritance to his father's brothers, and so forth and so on. And then it goes on to say, if the father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his kinsmen. You remember the beautiful picture in Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. This is played out and outlined in Numbers 28, verses 8 through 10. In essence, what I give you these verses to give you a picture of is it was very clear to the Jewish people how highly they and God regarded inheritance. Paul, he leverages this whole idea, this concept of inheritance. He clearly understands that they would understand, they, they, they would have a, a pretty good understanding of what it meant to be an heir. And look what he says in verse 7. He says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And in case that don't make you shout, in case that don't really get you excited about being a son, he says, check this out. Now understand what comes with being a son. He says, you are an heir through God. In other words, you're not a second-class citizen. You're not a second-rate child, but you get the full inheritance of the son and daughter. You have legally offered, you have legal rights to all the father has for you. Paul says, you are a son. I was thinking about just the background of Picasso. For those that not that, that not that familiar, history speaks of Picasso. He started off as extremely extraordinary artistic talent at a very early age. As a matter of fact, it was kind of woven within his veins. His father was an art instructor, a teacher, I believe at the local university. And so he, he was afforded opportunity after opportunity to, 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 to grow in his gifting. But an interesting intersection happens in his life. His father was extremely supportive. His family was significantly behind him fulfilling his dreams, but they had a unique dream and vision for their son. In 1898, Picasso, he became quite ill. Quite ill in 1898. And as he was recovering from his illness, it seems like he had an epiphany or kind of a, a, a transformative experience. If you go back and read his biography, it talks about in 1898, after his recovery from his illness, he had a different mindset, a different perspective, which in some ways set him on a trajectory of becoming the Picasso we know of today. In 1898, after recovering from this illness, he, he, he ended up making the decision to break away from his art school training and even reject his family plans for his future which some believe led to him becoming the famous Picasso we know about today. Found this interesting that the average and the cheapest Picasso painting costs about $120,000. While most, his most expensive piece could be as much as $140 million. 
Picasso perhaps would not be Picasso had he not had his probably um, crossroad moment suffering from his illness in 1898. But because of that moment, that dark moment perhaps in his life, many even celebrate his works, literally changing the world of art as we know it. Because of that moment, what's the point? I believe adoption is the Picasso of the gospel. In it, there is a divine opportunity for you and I to step into the lives of young men and women who are hurting, who are experiencing some hardship and brokenness. And God, by his providence, allows your path to cross theirs, my path to cross theirs. And then somehow, some way, we become pictures and portraits of the love of God lavished upon them. And who knows how God transformed their lives through our lives, leading to greater glory being reflected back unto him through us. Maybe the gospel, maybe the adoption, I believe it gives us this beautiful portrait of the gospel. What's the very practical application for you? I would say first step is start by praying. The goal of staying Sunday is for each of us to examine our lives and say, Lord, how do you want to use me? Some of you, God is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, I want you to be involved in foster care. As a matter of fact, some of you ought to have been wrestling through that. And we want to exhort you and encourage you to, hey, we're not telling you when or how, but I just want to encourage you to take the first step. I believe in the next couple of weeks or so, or maybe sooner, they're going to be having some interest meeting. Listen, I'll tell you this. I grew up in a single-parent home. I didn't meet my father for the first time until I was 25 years of age. And there were some godly men, some godly coaches, some godly teachers that stood in the gap that were showing me the way. Who knows how God might use you to guide and direct the life of someone else? Stories told of a missionary that he was invited to by a dear friend of his who was pastoring on a remote island. This missionary, he didn't really feel initially called to go there, but because of the relationship he had with the pastor friend of his, he decided to go. Now, because this plan, this place was, this island was underdeveloped, he'd heard stories about how tricky it was for the planes to land on the undeveloped runway. The pastor, knowing that his friend would be coming into town, flying in, but also to make matters worse, there was fog, big fog in the air, which would make a landing even more dangerous. His pastor friend, knowing his friend would be coming to visit, excited about his visit with them, he put a word out to all the people of that community, of that town. He says, I need y'all to meet me at the airport within this window of time. Bring your lanterns, bring the things that carry light. And what they did was they showed up at the airport. And what they did was they formed a cross on the runway. They lit their lanterns forming the shape of a cross, knowing, not knowing exactly what direction he'd come in from. But they knew that the cross, it would allow him to, to be guided safely, safely landing no matter what direction he came from. Maybe God is calling you to carry that light to light a cross so that somebody else may land safely into the kingdom. 
And the opportunity and challenge I lay before you and I today is will we put our yes on the table? Maybe it's going to be adoption. Maybe it's going to be foster care. Maybe it's going to be mentoring. All of us are not called to do the same thing, but we are all called to do something. And so my prayer, as I pray for you and with you, is that God will show you what is your next step in stepping in to, some, to, to be a beacon of hope to some of the most vulnerable in our city. Let's pray. Father, don't you ask of me. Father, I thank you that um, you are so great that even in my weakness, the beauty and hope of your word and the gospel, it actually even shines a little bit more brighter. So, Father, I pray that you will even now prick our hearts. God, show us the application to our very lives from this message. Father, I pray for the man, woman, boy, or girl who's in this room or maybe listening in online, who've yet to come to saving faith. I pray that today that salvation will visit their household, that they will surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God, I also pray for those of us who are in Christ, that you will search our hearts, oh God. Show us the truth you'd have us to apply from this day marching forward. Would you awaken an awareness to us to be empathetic, but yet also called to be problem solvers in the lives of others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Thank you that you stood with us well before we were willing to stand with you. So on this Stand Sunday, would you awaken, raise up a generation of individuals who see the broken and they run to their rescue. Not because we have the right answers, not because we're smart enough, have enough resources, but because, simply because you saved us. And we trust you, God, to work through our very lives, to extend a rescue cord to others. It's in the mighty name of Christ we pray. Amen.